the Pathways podcast of the American Society for Cell Biology. My name is Mary Spiro. I'm your host. And today we are going to be talking about creating an inclusive environment in your lab. And since this is Pride Month, we're going to be specifically focusing on how to improve inclusivity for the LGBTQ plus folks that may be in your laboratories and classrooms. Our guests today are Lee Ligon, the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs for the School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and Caitlin Cooper, an assistant professor at the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Uh, both Lee and Caitlin are on the LGBTQ committee, and Lee is also the co-chair of the Public Information Committee for ASCB. And Professor Cooper is the author of a paper recently published in Life Sciences Education entitled 14 Recommendations to Create a More Inclusive Environment for LGBTQ Plus Individuals in Academic Biology. Welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. <laughs> so why do we need to be concerned about creating an inclusive environment for LGBTQ people in our labs and classrooms? What are some of the specific concerns of that community? I think one of the issues it, with the LGBTQ plus community is that it's sometimes a hidden community. It's sometimes not obvious who is LGBTQ plus in your classrooms or your labs. And so we sometimes don't pay attention to that, to that community. But a couple of studies have come out in the last few years. The one that I think is, is most important in a way, because it was one of the first, was actually done by one of our sister societies, the American Physical Society. And that's the professional society for, for physicists. And uh, they did this, this great study a few years ago where they showed that um, a, a significant portion of LGBTQ plus physicists felt that they didn't belong in their in their classrooms or their labs. They they experienced harassment. They felt they were bullied, uh, and they really felt like they didn't belong in in the field. And they considered leaving the field. And this this finding has has been replicated in a couple of other studies with a broader community of scientists. And what this suggests to us is that. If people don't feel like they belong in a field, then they're more likely to leave it. If they don't feel a sense of, of inclusion or, or belonging in that particular uh, society or, or um, uh, classroom or lab, they are more willing to uh, think about changing careers, doing something else. And this is really problematic for science, in particular for the fields that we're in, biology, because we're losing talented people because they don't feel like they, they belong here. So it's actually in our best interest to make our labs and our classrooms embrace all people because we need all of those talented people to, to really do the best science that we can do. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton to add there, but to speak specifically to our undergraduate population, 
Recent studies by Bryce Hughes, who's a professor at Montana State University, have shown that LGBTQ plus undergraduates are disproportionately likely to be switching out of STEM fields compared to their straight and cisgender peers. So we know that these issues for LGBTQ plus individuals in STEM are happening really early on. And so we know that there's something going on that's driving LGBTQ plus students out of STEM. And so as Lee alluded to, there's quite a bit of existing research, including some of the research that's been done by my lab showing that STEM isn't the most welcoming space for LGBTQ plus students. And so if we aim to create a more inclusive scientific community, creating more inclusive classrooms and labs is a really concrete way that we can work toward that. What is it that you have discovered might be specific to the STEM fields that would create such an environment? I mean, I, I think that's, that's an interesting finding for me to hear. One thing I think that's unique about STEM is a lot of people presume that STEM is really objective and devoid of social influence completely. And we all know that that's not true, but that's often the assumption that's made and that's often um, what is described to students. And so to, to think that your identity isn't welcome or doesn't matter in STEM can be really, um, can cause students to, to not want to engage in STEM. Another thing is there have been studies that show that STEM professors are actually less accepting of LGBTQ plus identities compared to professors in other uh, disciplines such as humanities. And so there are different aspects, I think, of both who ends up in STEM as well as some of the ways that biology and STEM disciplines uh, in general can be taught that can be exclusionary for LGBTQ plus individuals. I think in my experience, it's been not so much that I've experienced people who are actively uh, prejudiced against LGBTQ plus people, but it's that we put blinders on and we don't want to deal with these issues, not just this issue, but all issues of inclusivity. And I think we following up on what what Caitlin said, we we tend to think of science as this this ivory tower type thing that uh, doesn't, we don't consider issues from the real world in a lot of ways. And so my colleagues in in the humanities and the social sciences, they're so aware of of issues of bias and and other forms of, uh, of prejudice and uh, lack of inclusivity, that they 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 tackle those issues head on. Whereas in science, we we don't want to think about that. You know, we think, okay, I'm teaching calculus. I that doesn't have anything to do with me, so I'm going to just ignore it. So I think in a lot of ways, the biggest problem that we have is thinking that it's not our problem. And, and trying to convince our colleagues that it's all of our problem. And we all should be thinking about these issues, not just for the LGBTQ plus community, but for, for all communities. Uh, we want all of our students to feel like they belong there. Uh, all, all genders, all, all um, races, all ethnicities, all religions, we want people to feel like they, they all belong. And in science, we tend to 
you know, put our head in the sand and, and, uh, and not really think about those issues. So certainly in an environment where a student or lab mate would feel unwelcome, they would shut down, they wouldn't contribute, they wouldn't um, ask questions, they wouldn't, and, and, and also would ultimately, I would assume, affect their career and their career advancement. So in your paper, Dr. Cooper, you talk about some of the uh, many, many ways that you can create an inclusive environment in, a, in your lab or in your classroom. What, what are some of those ways that you'd like to highlight? I think one concrete way we can create more inclusive environments is to create opportunities for students to be who they are. And so we can allow them to describe who they are by asking the names that they use and the pronouns that they use. And notably not their preferred name or pronoun because this isn't what they prefer. This is their name, this is their pronoun, right? That they use. And to also avoid making assumptions about who students are. So I think that for a student who walks into a 400-person biology course and they don't use the name that's on the roster, that course may be extremely challenging for them, right? They may have to deal with a name that they don't use anymore that comes up in their email, that comes up on their canvas, that they have to write down on exams. And if an instructor can change that for them, that can create that, that much more inclusive space for them. You're saying just using the name that they want to be called by. Exactly. And making the effort to change it in Canvas or to help them change that in the email system, right? Or to make sure that your TAs are aware so that they can write down the name they use on an exam and they don't have to write down a name that they don't use anymore. Pronouns are a a complicated issue and people have very complicated feelings about their own pronouns. And I think it's really important to not force the issue and to not demand that people share their pronouns if they're not uh, comfortable doing so. But I also think it's important for us, for all of us, especially those of us in positions of authority or power, to normalize the behavior. So you might see that a lot of people put their pronouns on their uh, their email signature or their um, their Zoom name and places like that, just to to make it become more of a normal activity to normalize that behavior. But some people uh, are not comfortable sharing. They're in a position of transition where they're not sure what they they want their pronouns to be. Some people don't prefer pronouns at all. Uh, there, I just used the word prefer. It's it's actually a really hard um, uh, um, concept for a lot of people. I have a colleague who doesn't choose to use pronouns at all, and it's actually kind of challenging for uh, referring to this person in emails and, and things like that. Um, but that is that person's choice. But it's it's our responsibility to adapt to to what they want. Yeah, I often find that if I'm in a situation where I'm not sure what a person's pronoun is and I don't have the opportunity to ask that, I just use the name they've given me and I just use it again and again with no pronouns whatsoever. 
what are some of the other things? I, I mean, you you mentioned things, Dr. Cooper, you mentioned things, you know, like being careful about pop culture references and jokes and assuming, you know, maybe how a person spends their time outside of classroom. I mean, some of those things I think also would probably be very problematic areas that a, uh, an instructor or a, a lab leader might, they would want to avoid those anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that humor is really an interesting topic. My, my lab has shown that humor is widely accepted by students and students really love when instructors use humor, unless that humor is offensive and any humor about identity groups is going to be potentially offensive to not only that identity group, but other minoritized identities. And so I think that, you know, we can all reflect and and maybe say, oh, well, I don't tell jokes that are really, really offensive, but maybe you have, right? Did you joke about Donald Trump? Did you joke about Republicans? Did you joke about religion, right? There are some things that may be more acceptable to joke about within academia, and you don't realize that you still may be offending particular students. And so I think that just being really conscientious of how you're integrating humor into your classroom is an important place to start. And like I said, I'm a huge advocate for using humor in the classroom. I think it can be a really powerful way to build community and to help students learn, but I think we need to be really thoughtful about what we're joking about. And with pop culture references, again, this is just another opportunity to engage students, but to be really thoughtful about what you're integrating into the classroom. So um, in one study, a student talked about this is when Caitlyn Jenner had just transitioned and come out and the instructor brought in Caitlyn Jenner and the lab group was making fun of her. And this student was transgender and the lab group didn't know. And he was like, well, I had an immediate idea of how they would ever, you know, how they would respond based on how they were joking about Caitlyn Jenner. And so I think that we really just want to be thoughtful about how we're integrating pop culture into the classroom. That being said, as we're constructing our classrooms, we want to give really powerful and positive examples of the LGBTQ plus community. So integrating LGBTQ plus scientists and highlighting their work can be a really powerful experience for our LGBTQ plus students because most of our students don't actually know any LGBTQ plus scientists, which really takes us back. But as Lee alluded to, this is a concealable stigmatized identity, right? For a lot of individuals, people don't know they're gay unless they come out and say, I identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So it's very possible that students have LGBTQ plus instructors that they that they don't know about. And so highlighting um, either yourself as a role model, if you're safe and comfortable doing so, if you're a member of this community or highlighting other LGBTQ plus scientists can be a really powerful way to create, you know, again, a more inclusive classroom. That's actually one of the things that the ASCB LGBTQ plus committee, which used to be the task force, uh, started with. We wanted to highlight out LGBTQ plus speakers, scientific speakers at the annual meeting. And we've been doing this since I think 2014. And we've had um, some really great speakers over the last few years. And it's uh, that session has, has been uh, really exciting because people come for the science and then they're 
then we talk about LGBTQ plus issues and they're like, oh, what, what is this all about? Um, but, but we have, we, we do it to, to highlight that these, that we are all scientists also. And I have to say that I actually met Lee through one of these sessions and I um, had the opportunity to go to this session and I was at the very beginning of my graduate career and very uncomfortable with my identity. So I identify as gay and I was very you know, very much in a period of not really comfortable being out. And I remember just being in this room of scientists who all identified as being LGBTQ plus. And I, A, I don't think I had ever been in a room of that many LGBTQ plus people. And then on top of that, that, that we all shared this love for science. It was a really incredible experience. And so I really credit ASCB for making this effort really quite early on to create this community of scientists who either identify or support, you know, this identity and and showing some of the phenomenal science that's been done. So I, yeah, hats off to Lee and this this committee, because I think that they've done a fantastic job. We'll return to the Pathways podcast after these brief announcements. Here's what's happening this month at the American Society for Cell Biology. Our annual meeting, Cell Bio Virtual 2021, will be here before you know it, and the abstract submission portal is open. Find out everything you need to know about our second online meeting at ascb.org forward slash Cell Bio 2021. Would you like to receive up to $1,000 to promote your science outreach project? Apply for a Compass Outreach Grant by June 11th. Visit ASCB.org and search the Grants and Awards tab to apply. Do you know Fred? That's our Faculty Research Education Development Mentoring Program, that is. Apply to this summer program and learn how to write successful grants. The application deadline is July 9th. Go to ASCB.org and find more information under our Career Development tab. And finally, is it time to update your resume or CV? Free review of your CV, resume, and cover letter is just one of the many benefits of membership in the American Society for Cell Biology. Look under the Career Development tab on our website for more information. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. That must have been an incredible feeling to be like, "Ah, my people, I'm in a room full of my people. It, it was. And it's it's just been really fun to get to be a part of this committee and, and watch it grow. But I think that ASCB does an absolutely incredible job, particularly with their conferences. And Lee, I think that you could speak to things like, you know, the opportunity to write down your pronouns, the rainbow flag. There are a lot of decisions that ASCB has made as part of this conference that you know, as kind of an outsider in the beginning, I immediately felt included and immediately could spot people who supported the LGBTQ plus identity, which again, I think is a really important way 
to support our students. Overtly supporting the LGBTQ plus community is one of the most powerful things you can do as an instructor and as a leader of the lab. So whether you include an acceptable, like an accepting statement on your syllabus or on your website, or you post something on the front of your lab door or on your office door, these are all ways that people can see really quickly that this is a safe space for them, or this is a person that respects their identity. And so, um, yeah, I've tried to take some cues from ASCB and integrate that into my, my own lab. One of the most amazing things that I think we did uh, a few years ago was back when we had in-person meetings, um, we worked with the, the meeting staff and the uh, convention center staff to have uh, all gender inclusive bathrooms uh, in, in, in the uh, convention center. So that was a really, uh, I was really proud of, of the fact that we were able to do that. So uh, let me play devil, devil's advocate here for a second. For example, you're a professor who you've been around for a while and you don't necessarily, you, your, maybe your religion or whatever makes it so that you are not accepting toward people in the LGBTQ plus community and you have a classroom full of students. What do you do? How do, how, how do you, how does the student work with that person and how can the professor work with their students? I mean, you, you know, it's a, it's a mutual respect, it's professionalism, but you're going to run into people who just are like, well, I, I don't believe in this sort of lifestyle, quote unquote lifestyle. I think that as a, um, I think you hit on, on the most important thing is as a professor or a lab PI or really anybody who works with other people in general, I think the most important thing is that we all should be treating each other with respect and professionalism. And if you have personal views that disagree with something that another person says, does, whatever, you should still be able to rise above that and treat other people with respect. One of the things that I try to emphasize now, not something that I, I used to do, but it's something that I've, I've tried to incorporate into my, my, my teaching, my um, administrative work, is to recognize that we all have multiple aspects of our identity. And those multiple aspects of our, of our identity all contribute to who we are. And we, we all need to recognize that each person is not just one thing. I am a lesbian, but I am not just a lesbian. I'm a cell biologist, but I am not just a cell biologist. I'm an academic administrator, but I am not just that. I mean, I am the combination of all of these things that, that intersect in interesting ways. And all of our students are the same way. All of our colleagues are the same way. And I think that if we can recognize that, then it helps us to become more accepting of the differences between us. And, and in, I hope to embrace the differences between us. I think those differences are actually what, what make us a creative community. It's those areas of friction that lead to new things. To build on that, I would say that, 
you know, when people come into our labs, regardless of what our personal belief system is, I think that many of us agree that more diverse groups do better science. And I think that, you know, as Lee said, we all hold so many different identities that making sure that you're creating a welcoming space in your lab, regardless of your personal views, is really important. Now, if your personal views align with the personal views of someone in your lab, of course, you may have a better connection with that person, right? Or you may just bond or relate to them on a level that that's greater. And that just is what it is. But I think that if we think about religion, we should be able to have a Muslim student working with a Christian student working with a staunch atheist in our lab, right? In the same way, we should be able to have an LGBTQ person working with someone um, who does not identify as part of the community. But I think the point is whether or not you personally, you know, accept LGBTQ plus people, creating an inclusive space is really, really important. I just want to emphasize that one of the points that that Caitlin made, because I think it's so important. Yes, it's true. If you are, you know, one type of person and you only attract those types of people to your lab, then your lab is going to be very narrowly focused. And that's not what we want our labs to be. Uh, aside from the educational part where we, we really hope that our educational communities are, are much more broadly thinking, we, scientifically, you need those different viewpoints to push your lab work forward. Science doesn't move forward by focusing on the same thing over and over and over again. Dr. Cooper, in your paper, you mentioned something about conducting biology education research in a way that is inclusive. And also, I want to ask about research, scientific, basic science research. What are some ways that you can incorporate the ideas, uh, those ideas into a research proposal or structure? Sure. Well, one thing I think, particularly for education research, is we survey our students a lot, right? And and we include student identities in a lot of our analyses because we know that student identities are really important in terms of students' experiences in the classroom, in their labs, and creating surveys that are inclusive. Again, this is something really small, but that can be really exclusionary to students if they get a survey that says, are you male or are you female? First of all, male and female are describing sex and not gender, and gender is a social construct, so we should be using terms like woman and man. And we know that gender is not binary, right? So if we only give students two choices, that's already excluding a good portion of our students. So we also want to give a non-gender binary option and an other option and allow students to describe their identity as well as always allowing students to decline to state their identities. 
So this is something that we highlight in this paper, and we also provide example survey questions. So even if you're an instructor looking to survey your class, just to see who's in it, right? This is a great way to get a sense for who's in my 400 person biology class. You can send out a survey and we give you example questions if you're a bit intimidated about how do I ask about gender or how do I ask about LGBTQ plus um, identities? We give you some questions that you can send to your students. So I think that that's one way that we're really working to make biology education research in particular more inclusive. Another thing is that when we write to be really, a, um, Another thing is that when we write to be really aware of gender and how we're describing students. So when we're describing all students, writing he slash she is probably not the most inclusive way to describe a group of individuals, but instead using they. And APA actually accepts they as a singular pronoun. And so what has happened is we will write these papers and we'll get them back from the copy editor with all the they's change back to he slash she. And then we have to have a conversation with the copy editor about why we very intentionally use they as a pronoun. And so I think that, you know, kind of fighting for that at this point in time is really important to start norming little things like that, that actually are a uh, a quick way for an individual to assess whether this group of scientists is inclusive or is thoughtful of different identities. And so I'm going to leave the basic science research part to Lee, though. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of ways that you can incorporate these issues in the way that you approach science, perhaps not necessarily in the you know, the actual cell biology that you're doing. I mean, if you're working on tissue culture cells, they, they don't have a gender identity, we hope. <laughs> we hope that our tissue culture cells are not sentient. Um, but if, you, if you're writing NSF grants, for example, you, you have the broader impact section. And part of that is, is thinking about how you're going to communicate your science to a wider audience. What is that wider audience? How do you define it? Um, how can you include a broader community of, of people? Um, in, my, in, in one of my other roles, uh, I am the uh, co-chair of the uh, Public Information Committee, which is actually the committee that's, that's really interested in scientific outreach and communication. And one of the things that we talk about is how to design outreach programs to, to bring in a wider audience. As we go through life, we're going to make mistakes. Students might make mistakes with their peers. Professors will make mistakes with their students. What are some ways that you can use these mistakes as a teachable moment. For example, earlier I used the term quote unquote lifestyle when I know that your sexual orientation is not a lifestyle choice, it's not a preference, it is who you are. But I use the term, I use that on purpose. But, you know, someone may say that, someone may say, oh, well, that's just your sex sexual preference or that's, you know, you choose to be this way or that way. Um, or you're confused. They could they could say many number of things. Like, how do we use these mistakes, these um, 
these situations as teachable moments, as ways to uh, bring people together. Absolutely. I think the first thing to recognize is that we all make mistakes, right? Members of the LGBTQ plus community make mistakes about people with our own identities and people with different identities. So mistakes are okay. But I think the important aspect is to do the internal work. So if you misgender somebody, you need to apologize, but then you need to go back and do the internal work so that you make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's exactly what I think that the most important thing to do is, you know, familiarize yourself with terms or just take those steps so that you make sure you're not repeating the same mistake. And another important thing is, you know, don't, don't overly apologize so that you're putting the burden back on the individual who you've harmed because they don't need to feel, you know, any guilt about your mistake. And so just quickly apologizing, moving on, and then doing that internal work is one of the most powerful things that we can do when we make a mistake. The other thing is when other people make mistakes, uh, it's, it's important to not make them feel really bad for making a mistake, just to gently correct and, and move on. As, as Caitlin said, I think it's really important to, to normalize this behavior, to say that we all make mistakes, none of us are perfect, and we just, we, we make gentle corrections either to ourselves or to other people. We apologize if necessary, and we move on. Well, that's a great place, I think, to uh, maybe wrap this up. Are there any other points or ideas that you'd like to share with the ASCB community and whoever else is listening to this podcast, hopefully more than just a handful of people? I think we covered a lot of material and I'm not sure I have a lot more to say. I think it's, I, I think I will, I would like to just end by wrapping a lot of the things that we said up in a, in a small package, which is that I think it's really important that we create spaces in our, in our communities, in our lives, in our classrooms, in our labs, where all people feel like they belong there and they feel like they are in a position to succeed. If they do the work and, and they put in what they need to do, they can succeed. And we, we value and respect all of those people in, in, in those environments. And we embrace all of the differences between us. That was beautifully said. I have nothing to add. Well, thanks, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Ligon. Thanks for being with me this month. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. The Pathways Podcast is a production of the American Society for Cell Biology. Thank you for listening.